compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Let's come before our Heavenly Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for planning creation. And Son of God, we thank you for carrying out creation and fashioning this entire vast universe. And then when something went drastically wrong and sin entered in this world, Heavenly Father, thank you for not leaving us broken and for not leaving this world broken and us addicted to sin. And Father, thank you for uh, making a way because we justly deserved your eternal, never-ending wrath. Thank you for your even greater plan than creation itself, your plan to send your Son who fashioned creation into creation to become one of us, to take on a body forever, to save us forever. And tonight, we celebrate that wonderful birthday that is like no other's where the Son of God was born into this world. And we want to begin by just pausing and worshiping. We want to pause and absorb this. We want to endure you, Jesus. Thank you for pouring all of yourself into a much smaller vessel. And not just a body for 30 years, but a body forever, to save us forever. And while we celebrate your birth tonight, at the same time we look forward to Good Friday and the cross and the payment for our sins and Easter and the empty tomb and the conquering of Satan, sin and death once and for all and the accomplishment of the great work that you came to do that we see beginning at Bethlehem. So we ask this all in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now, typically at Christmas time like this, what the pastor does is he turns to Matthew chapter 1 or to Luke chapter 2, and he talks about the story of Mary, Joseph, and Bethlehem and some shepherds. And that, that's all well and good, but tonight we are going to do something a little bit different. If you look at the birth narrative in Matthew chapter 1, you find right in front of it is actually a long, lengthy genealogy. And most of us skip that genealogy because it feels like reading the phone book. Just one name after another name after another name, and we start to say, Matthew, I, I like starting with Jesus' birth, but why would you put a genealogy before Jesus' birth? Well, tonight... We're going to find out the answer why. And why that genealogy is so important to the Christmas story. And why it takes the Christmas story and makes it incredibly good news for great sinners like you and me. So if you have your outlines, which is a very brief one, take it out. What I did is I didn't put the whole genealogy in there. I know that relieves some of you tonight. But I did is I put a couple key sections of the genealogy that I would like you to follow along as I read through it. Beginning in Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 3. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Jumping down to verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And then picking up in verse 15. And Iliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. The culture in the day that Matthew wrote 2,000 years ago was very different than the culture that we have today. We live in what is called a very individualistic culture, where it's about us as individuals. And you can see that simply by looking at the way we write our resumes. A resume is about me and what I have done. Here's the schools that I went to. Here are the grades that I have. Um, here are the accomplishments I've done at work. While we live in an individualistic culture, 2,000 years ago when Matthew wrote, it wasn't that way at all. People were not as much interested in what you did, but they were interested in where you came from. Who were your ancestors? Who were you connected to? And that's what brings us to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 may look like to us a long list of obscure names, but actually what it is is Jesus Christ's resume. It's Jesus' family tree. It's the people that he was connected to. And it's only after the readers of Matthew would know who Jesus Christ came from that they would want to find out who he was and what he did. Now, just as uh, it was very, it's very important in our day to have a resume that looks good so people will be interested in knowing more about us, in the ancient world it was very important to have a good genealogical family resume so people would want to know more about you. Just as today sometimes people tinker with their resume to hide bad work experiences from future employers, the same thing happened in the ancient world. Sometimes people would tinker with their genealogical resumes, sort of uh, whiting out those relatives <laughs> that they didn't want anyone to know they were actually connected with. And we probably all have some of those, don't we? In fact, Herod the Great, he was known for having wiped out, or at least erased, should we call, some people in his genealogical resume because it would not make him look quite as good. So what you would expect is here in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew should normally write a resume of all the wonderful people in Jesus' background that he was connected with. Therefore, we should listen to him and see what his life story has to say. But this is where things take a sudden, drastic turn. Verse 1. 
While almost all genealogical resumes in the ancient world were pristine and men of character, Jesus' genealogical resume is messy. It's filled with sinners, outsiders, cultural outsiders, moral outsiders, people that most people would never want to be associated with. Yet, Matthew says they're all connected to Jesus, and that's his background. Let me see if I can explain this to you. First of all, if you go through the entire entire genealogy, you find there are five women listed in Jesus' genealogy. Now that may not jump out to you, but you need to understand that in an ancient patriarchal world 2,000 years ago, it would be remarkable if there was even one woman listed in any genealogical record. Yet, Matthew wants uh, everyone to know that there are five women in Jesus' genealogy. And by doing that, he gives incredibly high value to women. Jesus highly values women. The other thing to notice is that most of these women are not good Jewish women, but they're Gentile women. And they're um, people that you would not normally want to put into your family tree. I sort of highlighted some of their names as we read through them, like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. These women are Canaanites. These women are Moabites. These are the kind of women that good Jewish people would not normally associate with. Yet these are the women that are in the background of Jesus' family tree. Now, if you've been with us as a regular attendee at Crosswinds, you know we've been studying through the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, we learned where the Moabites came from. Do some of you remember that? The Moabites are the descendants of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. They're a product of incest. They would not normally be allowed into the temple They wouldn't be even connected with the Jews for worship. They'd be snubbed by the Jews. Yet Jesus says, Moabites are part of his family tree. I want everyone to know that they're part of Jesus' background. In fact, as you start to study this genealogy, you find that this genealogy highlights some of the nastiest and most immoral actions that took place in the Old Testament. Matthew wants everyone to know that they're all directly connected to Jesus. Let me go ahead and go over some of these for you. Uh, For instance, if you have been in the study of Genesis that we've been doing over the past several months, you remember the story of Judah. And if we read it in the genealogy, it says, and um, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. It's like in the genealogy, he stops and he expands that point. So you really notice it and doesn't just jump through it. Do you remember the story of Perez and Zerah and where they came from? Judah was the fourth son of Jacob. Judah was one of those kids that was a proverbial, uh, somebody who ran far from God. He was a, a son that literally left home went to be with the Canaanites, married a Canaanite woman, had three sons through her. 
He wasn't following God. His wife wasn't following God. And we know that what happened in the story is that the first two sons that he had were actually struck dead by God because of their immorality. That's a pretty bad way to go when God's striking two of your three sons dead. Now, the wife of the oldest son was a woman named Tamar. Now, in the day, what would normally happen is, according to the custom known as Leverite marriage, Tamar would then be given as a wife to the next oldest son, or the next youngest son, I should say. And she would there be able to conceive children and pass on the family name of the deceased husband. But Judah refused to pass her on to his remaining son named Sheila. In fact, he just sort of put her on ice for a long period of time. Eventually, even uh, Judah's wife died, his Canaanite wife. And then what happened was a strange plan was, was hatched. Tamar, who was desperate for children, desperate to be able to pass on the family name, decided to pose as a prostitute and seduce her father-in-law. And he gave into it. And he conceived his own grandchildren. That's called incest. Nowhere in the Bible is that approved of. That's totally wrong. Yet, what Matthew does is he sort of highlights that section of Jesus' family tree and says, you know what? Jesus is, comes from a really dysfunctional family background. If you come from a dysfunctional family background, Jesus understands. Jesus can connect with one of those messed up family backgrounds because he has part of it in his family tree as well. Let's take someone else that is highlighted here in this genealogy. Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite. She wasn't just any Canaanite. She was a Canaanite prostitute. Now here's my question for you. How many of you would like a prostitute publicly named in your genealogical family tree? I don't think anybody Yet Matthew goes out of his way to highlight her name. As if to say, you know, if you're somebody who is struggling with sexual sin, Jesus has those kind of people in his family tree. He understands what you're going through too. But probably most intriguing though, is not Rahab, it's not Tamar, but probably most intriguing in this list is David and his son Solomon. Because it says, David gave birth to Solomon by Uriah's wife. Now, you don't need to be a biblical scholar to know something looks a little funny with that one, doesn't it? What is the background of that story? The background is that David, when he was young and he was running like a fugitive from King Saul, while he was in the wilderness, there was a group of men that came out to be with him. They came out to protect him and to fight for him. 
In fact, David really owed his life to these men because it's through them that he survived. They were, <clears throat> they were known as David's mighty men. And there was 30 of them. And one of, these David, one of David's mighty men that David owed his life to, who had defended David for years and had been by his side, was a man named Uriah. And after David became king and things settled down, David's mighty men, they continued to fight for him, to risk their very lives for him on the battlefront. One day they went back to the battlefront and David decided to stay home and pursue leisure instead of risk his life at war. And one day he glanced out of his palace window and he saw a woman bathing on her rooftop, a very beautiful woman that caught his eye. He sent for her and he took her. He slept her, slept with her and he left her pregnant. That woman was Uriah's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. He committed adultery with a man who had literally risked, with the wife of a man who had literally risked his life time after time to save David's skin. The story gets worse. David had invited Uriah home and got him drunk and encouraged him to sleep with his wife so it would look like the child that was in Bathsheba's womb was actually his. But Uriah was a man of such high integrity and high character that he refused to go home and enjoy the pleasures of intimacy with his wife while the other men were still sleeping on the front lines of the battlefield. So David stooped to what is an incredibly low sin. He penned a letter that would instruct on how Uriah would die on the battlefield to Joab. He sealed that letter and then had Uriah carry his own death sentence back to his commanding officer. You think about that. That's terrible. That's hideous. You know, that's like some of the worst sin of all, to betray somebody of that level of confidence, to commit adultery with his wife and then murder him, and then at the end, marry the woman, making yourself look like the great hero so she wouldn't have to be a single mother. Who would want David and Bathsheba connected with your public genealogy? Anyone here? I'd like to snuff them out. In fact, if we were to continue through this genealogy, what you would find, it's a complete list of great sinners, adulterers, those who have committed incest, prostitutes, moral failures, cultural outsiders, all the kind of people that the law of Moses declared would normally never go to the temple and would never normally be considered part of God's people. Yet Matthew begins his gospel by saying all these people, these great sinners and cultural outsiders, they're all the roots of Jesus' family tree. That's the family that he was born into. The million dollar question is why? Why did Matthew want everyone to know 
that all these sinners and these cultural outsiders are what make up Jesus' genealogical background. The exact opposite of what most people in that day would expect to see in the front of these letters. There are three reasons. The first is this. Matthew wanted everybody to know that great sinners, moral failures, and cultural outsiders are all part of Jesus' family in the past. And those same people are the kind of people that Jesus was to graft into his family in the present. That if you are somebody who is a great sinner and you feel like God could never have you as part of his family, as you read this genealogy, you say, you know what? Maybe I'll actually fit in. Maybe Jesus is for me because there's all kinds of great sinners and cultural outsiders in Jesus' family background. Christmas means if you are a great sinner far from God, you too can fit into Jesus' family line. Tonight, it doesn't matter what you have done in your past. It doesn't matter how you have failed. You could even have been on the paid staff of hell itself. If you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus to save you, you too will be grafted into Jesus' family tree. No matter how sinful your past you can still connect to Jesus. He came from an incredible sinful line in the past so he can graft in those with sinful lines in the present. The second thing that comes out of this genealogy is this. And it has to do with something called Old Testament ritual uncleanness. In the Old Testament, if you study this, uh, God's people were very concerned to avoid contact with anyone who had either committed sin or who was ritually unclean because of any kind of sin. So this led to God's people protecting themselves so they wouldn't be unclean because sin and moral filth was contagious and it affected other people. But when you come to the New Testament, Jesus flips this whole thing on its head. You see, when we ask Jesus to adopt us and to make us part of his family tree, our sin does not pollute him. Instead, his holiness purifies us. When we connect with Jesus, his holiness is so overwhelming that we find ourselves purified. In fact, it says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, that though your sins be as scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. Tonight, it doesn't matter what you have done. When you become part of Jesus' family tree, when you ask him to adopt you and to become a son or daughter of God, what happens is he grafts you in and his holiness washes away the filth of your sin and his holiness as you walk with him begins to change the moral heartbeat of your very heart. The things that were sinful that you once loved, you will learn to hate. The things that are holy, you will become to enjoy. You will become more and more like Christ himself. 
So the first message we pull out of the genealogical family tree is that no matter who you are in the past with your sin, you can connect in. Jesus came from a great line of sinners for all of us sinners. The second thing we learned is that his holiness is contagious. When we connect with him, it overwhelms our sin and it purifies us and makes us white as snow. The third thing we learn from this is that everybody needs to connect to Jesus, no matter who they are. As you're going through this genealogy, you'll see that there's some kings and some great men in this list. In fact, David is normally considered one of the great men in the list. I mean, David writes Psalms. He writes parts of our Bible. I mean, this guy is an amazing man. He's known as a man after God's own heart. Yet as you look at his life, and you look at his actions with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, you realize that everyone needs God's grace, no matter who they are. Everyone needs Christ to be connected to Jesus and have his holiness overwhelm their sin and wash it away. In fact, David, who we would normally think would be the best guy in the list, actually turns out, I think, personally, to be the worst guy in the list. A murderer, an adulterer of one of his closest friends. Tonight, as we celebrate one of the greatest events in the history of the world, the coming of Jesus Christ in flesh, let us not forget where he came from, because it tells us who he came for. He came from a line of great sinners and outsiders, because he came to save great sinners. He came to save outsiders. He came from a line of people who at one time had been far from God, but they were grafted into the family to be brought near to God. And in the same way, he came and he was born in Bethlehem to take people like you and me, who at one time were far from God, to graft us into his family line and to purify us and change us once and for all and forever. Now before we go, I, I have a challenge. Actually, I have two challenges. The first challenge I would like to give to those of you who are here tonight who are not connected to Jesus' family tree. Maybe you've never connected yourself to Christ's family tree because you thought you were too sinful. You thought you were too far of an outsider, that you would never fit into the church and God's people. But yet, tonight you need to know that after looking at Jesus' genealogy, that Jesus came to save sinners. And Jesus came from sinners for sinners. Tonight, my challenge to you is confess your sin and ask Jesus to adopt you into his family before you leave this room. Ask Jesus to graft you into his family tree. And in the moment you do that, you will find his holiness will overwhelm your sinfulness.
The Bible says that though your sins be as scarlet, as we said before, he will make them as white as snow. The other challenge I have is for those of you who are already part of Jesus' family tree. The challenge I have for you is to worship and adore our Savior. It's oftentimes hard for us to wrap our minds around the incredible love, holiness, and purity of Jesus Christ and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Many times we think that when we sin and we fail morally, that God will break us out of the family tree. But look at David. He didn't break him out of the family tree. In fact, he redeemed his great sin and continued to work through his family tree. And in the same way, tonight I encourage you to worship Jesus Christ because he came from sinners, for sinners, and he won't break you off. Repent and trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, as we come to you tonight, I want to begin talking to you for those who do not know you. If that is you, tonight let me give you a moment to just confess your sin to God. Now, take a moment to ask Jesus to graft you into his family tree. Now thank Jesus for having washed away your sin and made you purer and whiter than snow. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming from sinners and outsiders to save sinners and outsiders that we do not deserve. Tonight, we just don't want to thank you that you were born. We want to thank you for the family that you were born into which tells us that you came to save great sinners like us. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.